0: If you're feeling not even humility if you're feeling depressed or if you're feeling your self-worth is down you're feeling like dust remember it's dust that God uses to make beautiful things and if you're walking around like all this in a bag of chips in confidence remember your dust <laughs> remember your dust and so humble confidence what would seem to be an oxymoron God puts together into the way he would have us live our lives doesn't it? in humble confidence, humble because I know all good things come from God, confident because I know all good things come from God. See how that works I mean that's just yeah so when we sort of let God fit stuff together that in the in my you know earthly or worldly point of view might not make any sense to me, but in my in my view point of view through um, my relationship with christ suddenly it all makes sense
1: welcome to the so powerful podcast this is your host jan cancilla you know the sound of my sewing machine means it's time for another episode so let's get started in this week's podcast we hear from dana buck dana is a so powerful board member and author of The So Powerful Parables, both in book and podcast formats. Today's engaging talk is one he recently shared with the congregation of the Renton Christian Center. Dana focuses on John 12 verses 22 to 24 to help us understand how the broken can become beautiful. Listen for the stories of the truck driver with a bad heart and the young widow with a life insurance policy. Then you will probably need a tissue, I know I did, as Dana reads his original work, Broken Teacups. Please enjoy. Here is Dana Buck.
0: Sweetly broken. So Brandon and I hang out every Tuesday night together. We work on a podcast together, and um, he's awesome and great engineer and makes me sound pretty, you know, pretty, pretty understandable, and um, so he asked me what I was, you know, was going to talk about, and I told him like, I had to send something to Annie because Annie wanted to put something on the website, so I said it's going to be from broken to beautiful. And um, I kind of love oxymorons. Oxymorons are kind of fun, you know, jumbo shrimp. One <laughs> of uh, uh, military intelligence, you know, that was, that was a good one. Hot water heater. If it's already hot, why do you heat it? Makes no sense. But oxymorons are always kind of fun. And so when um, uh, the worship team was practicing, and there's a, just a little time of just kind of setting the tone this morning, and uh, Kevin got up and kind of closed that time, and he said, I have two words for you. He says, humility and confidence. And so when you kind of look at those, two, or I could shorten it into uh, humble confidence. Humble confidence, which... To, the, to my non-Christian years would sound like an oxymoron. Well, wow, that's one of those oxymorons. But when you live in the kingdom of God, you realize the kingdom of God is full of oxymorons. Well, Alex said one today. You want to find life? Lose it. You want to be beautiful? Be broken. Um, Kevin's whole thing of bringing that up was, hey, if you're feeling incredibly humble, and you just realize, you know, because they were just doing, you make beautiful things out of the dust, That you're just dust, but remember, that's what God makes beautiful things out of. So if you're feeling, not even humility, if you're feeling depressed or if you're feeling your self-worth is down, you're feeling like dust, remember, it's dust that God uses to make beautiful things. And if you're walking around like all this in a bag of chips in confidence, remember you're dust. (laughs) Remember you're dust. And so humble confidence what would seem to be an oxymoron, God puts together into the way he would have us live our lives, doesn't it? In humble confidence. Humble because I know all good things come from God. Confident because I know all good things come from God. See how that works? I mean, that's just, yeah. So when we sort of let God fit stuff together, that in, the, in my you know, earthly or worldly point of view might not make any sense to me, but in my... In my view, point of view through uh, my relationship with Christ, suddenly it all makes sense. Um, one of the things, uh, we're going to jump back into the book of John this morning because that idea of broken to beautiful actually fits um, really nicely. Um, and let me just say this about going through a book, going through a book of the Bible. Here's what we usually, what pastors usually do, what speakers usually do. I do it everybody does it. You carve out a section of scripture, right? A story of Jesus or a principle or whatever, and you carve out that section of scripture and you read it and then you talk about it in context. Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing wrong with that. It happens all the time and it's a way for us to learn the precepts of God and the stories of Christ and who we are in in Jesus. But... There is something really, really valuable about understanding the context of these stories in the Bible as they unfold, particularly in the Gospels. Now, you can definitely pull these stories out individually and and, and read them and preach on them and, and learn from them, but when you do that in context, that's why I'm so appreciative that Kevin is taking us through the book of John, not just You know, helicoptering, you know, droning down on certain verses, but taking us through because I think it's really valuable to see and understand the context in which these things are happening and unfolding. So, Jason talked to us last week um, when last we left our players, right? Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had a big party and they celebrated Lazarus' resurrection and Mary in this wonderful amazing act of worship you know breaks the anybody remember what that perfume was called nard yeah the nard doesn't sound particularly beautiful nard um but she breaks it and anoints jesus and wipes his feet with her hair and you know judas gets all upset hey we could have sold that and judas this basically says judas was the guy that was dipping into the till um but Jesus says, you know, leave her alone. That was something that was important for her to do. She was, he was, she was preparing him. This was the same type of spice and perfume that they would use when somebody died. And um, that she was preparing him for that. And so, and it basically says that the Pharisees were seeing all of this. That they saw uh, you know Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they saw that the people were overwhelmed by that, but all they could think of was they want not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus because of the witness that they had. So you just see you see this story kind of unfolding. it's like you know Jesus has fed the five thousand, he's healed, he's preached, people have heard him, now he's raised Lazarus from the dead. that's really got the buzz going. and after this, after he How's this party with, um, with Lazarus and his family and all these people are there? The very next thing that happens in the Gospel of John is the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Now, John, in his Gospel, doesn't really make much of a fuss about it. It's kind of just, you know, a, a few lines before he goes into kind of the next story. But he talks about how the people came and they waved the palm branches as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. And then this next story occurs, which we're going to go into in a second. But I want, to, I want to kind of back us up a little bit. Because the people of Israel were waiting for a Messiah. The people of Israel had been waiting for a Messiah for thousands of years. The people of Israel were under the oppressive rule of the Romans. They wanted a Messiah. And suddenly this guy comes along who raises the dead heals the sick all the prophetic things in the book of Isaiah that they said the Messiah would do and he raises Lazarus from the dead so when he's going to enter Jerusalem I used to wonder I used to you know, again when you helicopter the Bible a little bit here's what I used to wonder like why because when we celebrate Easter it's like Palm Sunday and then what's the next Sunday Easter so in between those two what happens on Friday they kill him and I remember I used to like go, were these the people that were like waving the palm fronds on Sunday? And now all of a sudden, Friday, they kill them? Like Pilate brings him out before the people. And it says, it's customary during your Passover to free a prisoner who's condemned to death. Here's Jesus Christ in whom, or not Christ, but here's this Jesus who I find no fault in. And here's Barabbas, a murderer, a crazy dude, you know, whatever. Who do you want? Free Barabbas. Free Barabbas. And I used to look at that and i go, what? These were the same people waving the palm fronds that were saying free Barabbas, free Barabbas. What happened in that period of time? What happened in that period of time was they didn't understand who their Messiah was that their messiah was going to be the suffering servant what did they want they wanted the conqueror they wanted the man to ride in they wanted the sword they wanted the romans eliminated they wanted the restoration of the kingdom of israel they want that's what they wanted and that's what and when jesus came riding on a donkey's colt humble and as we're going to see talking up and preparing his disciples and the people for the fact that he was going to be killed. That's not the Messiah they wanted. So on Friday, they were done with him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And a lot of that was egged on and was, you know, they didn't have social media. Imagine if they had social media back then, what the Pharisees would have been posting, right? Oh, see, we told you he's fake. Lazarus wasn't dead. He was, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's a phony. But That's what happened, word of mouth or whatever. Sunday, he was the Messiah. Friday, free, give us Barabbas. And so, like, what happened between those? And so, the story that we're going to read here is is part of that. So, I'm going to be in um, John 12, and I'm going to start in verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew in turn told Jesus. Now this is one of those verses that, you know, does anybody here have a red letter Bible in your lap right now? Yeah, I do too. I have my red letter. This is one of those verses that we just sort of, because blah, 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 I want to get to the red letter. I want to get to what Jesus said. So we just go, blah, 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 Philip, Greeks, blah, blah, blah. And then what does Jesus have to say? But hold on our. <laughs> Because this is kind of important. Now, these Greeks, when we read that, they probably weren't from Greece. You remember that the Roman Empire inherited the empire of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the known world. Alexander the Great died. He did it by the time he was 33 years old. He died. Um, there was no successor, he had no son, there was no kingship to pass along. Alexander had five generals. That were his key generals. And the empire of the Greeks was parceled up amongst these five generals. So it became actually five smaller empires. And so when Rome rose, Rome picked those off one by one. So Greeks could be anywhere. And Greeks was almost uh, a uh, transferable term to the Jews for like a Gentile. Oh, you're not Jewish, you're a Greek. Well, these were Greek converts to Judaism. Now, did they live in... In Jerusalem, did they come in for the feast? They probably came in. Now, they could have been from Greece. They could have been from Athens. Who knows? But they probably weren't. They probably came in from one of the surrounding regions. They hear this buzz about this guy Jesus and da 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 So, so isn't it interesting that the Greeks go to Philip and say, hey, we want to talk to Jesus? Do you know why they went to Philip? Because Philip is a Greek name. Alexander the Great's father was Philip. So the Greeks wanted to see Jesus, and they said, "Let's go ask this dude, Philip, because he's got a Greek name." And maybe that's going to be some way for So when you understand all these little nuances, right? It's like these are human beings that are navigate, that we forget, that have motives and plans and whatever. And so they go to Philip and they say, "We really want to see Jesus. We want to meet with Jesus." Does Philip, like, go, awesome, let's go. I know right where he is. Let's, Let's go see him. No, Philip, like, goes and talks to Andrew. Like, what's that all about? Why does Philip go talk to Andrew? And then Andrew and Philip together go talk to Jesus. So obviously, Philip wasn't sure if he should do that. And so Philip goes to Andrew, and they discuss it together, and then, you know, they finally do. Go to Jesus, but there's several reasons for that. And when you remember the Messiah belonged to the Jews; that was their mentality. And then suddenly, here were these they were they were Jews by um, by religion because they had um, adopted Judaism, but they weren't Jewish by ethnicity. If they would have taken the you know 23andMe, they wouldn't have passed it, right? They weren't Jewish by ethnicity, and suddenly. These sort of non-Jews wanted access to Jesus. Not only that, but the Pharisees were just looking, as we know, we're just looking for anything. They were constantly trying to trap Jesus in something so they could arrest him. And and Philip probably knew, like, holy smokes, man, if I bring these Greeks, these non-ethnic Jews, to the rabbi, and he starts teaching them, what are the Pharisees going to do with that? We're cooked. Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Because I don't want to deny access to somebody that wants to see the teacher. That's not the right thing to do. I know. I'll go ask Andrew. Andrew's a smart guy. And that must be what he did. And Andrew said, oh, geez, man, I can see why. <laughs> you're, um, you know what, dude? Let's just go ask him. So they don't bring the Greeks. In fact, you never even hear the Greeks after that. It's like, let's, um, let's go ask them. Let's go see what he says. So now we get. So that's the setup for this conversation that Jesus has with them, and I think they probably thought it was going to be this discussion about do you want to meet with the Greeks or not. That's what they thought. Do you want to see these Greeks or not? You know, here's the risk. Here's the rewards. What do you think, Lord? And Jesus, have you ever done this with somebody? Like you, like ask them a question and they just go sideways somewhere. Jesus kind of just goes sideways. They probably asked them this very straightforward question. And instead, he goes into this metaphor. Let's, let's kind of see what that is. So here's... And it says, Jesus replied. So they asked him, Hey, these Greeks want to come see you. Uh, what do you think? What should we do? These are probably the risks. You know, blah, blah, blah. And here's what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. And this is what Alex shared from the top. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Jesus, do you want to see these Greek guys? Because they want to come meet you. And then Jesus tells this story. The man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. He doesn't even answer their question. But what he's preparing them for is, guys, it's going to be different from this point on. It's going to be different, and then he tells them the story about the sweet. And as you know, with any seed or whatever you take a seed, it's a single seed, and you—it's almost like a—it's almost like a burial. Well, it is a burial, right? You, Digging in the dirt you put the seed in and you cover it just the same as we would if we were you know interring an individual or whatever so the metaphor Jesus uses is it's saying it dies now we know you know the seed isn't dead obviously it still has the capability of life but if that seed if I just hold like a this is the coolest seed ever so I have a bird feeder in my backyard right and uh, I put the I put the bird seed in there it's this mix of bird seed and I'm sitting on my patio yesterday and uh, this, I, and, I, and I can hear something like it's, like it's raining. And I'm like, what is going on? And I can, I can see the ground and all this birdseed is like falling on the ground. And I'm like, what in the world? And I get up and look and there's a squirrel. And he's, he's digging through the stuff he doesn't want to get the seed he does want. Because there's sunflower seeds in there and stuff like that. So all the other stuff, he's like, ruh, 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 ruh. but then he gets the seed he wants. Oh, that's the one I want. And then he sat there and, ruh, ruh, ruh. and it was a baby squirrel. it's only like this big. So I just let them have it. Whatever, you know. So if I'm like that squirrel, I, uh, this is a cool seed. I love this seed. This seed's so awesome. I'm never going to plant it. I'm just going to hold it. I'm just going to hold it and enjoy it and look at it and rub it because it's nice and smooth. Is that seed ever going to produce anything? No, it's not. That seed has to go into the ground and be covered. And then Jesus said, if that happens... And again, he uses a wheat seed because they could understand that it could be any seed. If that happens, it's going to grow and it's going to produce many seeds. What he was basically saying to them is, if I am going to be put into the ground, it's because I am going to produce many seeds. And in the context of them coming to him and saying, these Greek guys want to meet you. What do you think? This was what Jesus was explaining. It's not just about you, 12 dudes. It's not just about, you know, the little villages around Galilee that we've been wandering to. It's now going to be about the whole world. And he's explaining to them that the son of, and, he, and then he puts himself in the role of that seed. The son of, This is what will happen to the son of man. But then he does something that probably shook them up if they understood what he was saying because he turns around and says to them the man who loses his life a man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it and I don't know that Jesus actually meant love and hate there in like the little I hate you know my daughter used to do that you know she'd break a nail she'd go I hate my life that was her like thing I hate my life Um, that was just her little exclamation I don't think Jesus meant it like that not that I hate my life but it's like do I love this seed so much that I'm just going to hold on to it? Or do I realize a greater truth about life and how life works and I'm actually going to plant that and release this thing that I think I love and do what appears if you don't understand the, the, how, you know, planting and harvesting and growing works. It's like, he must hate that seed. It was so beautiful. Beautiful. It was so, you know, he stuck it in the ground. Not only did he stick it in the ground, he covered it with dirt. He must, you know, he must hate that seed. That's what Jesus was talking about. In your life, do you love this life so much that you're not willing to be broken? Because he was going to be broken. And then he basically says, if you're going to follow me, then you're going where I'm going. And they didn't all the way understand what that meant yet. They were going to understand what he meant about going where I'm going. But they were starting to get it because he was laying out the clues. If you're going to follow me, you're going to go where I'm going to go. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be broken. And that wasn't just for Philip and Andrew. When he said, if you're going to follow me, he wasn't just talking to Philip and Andrew. He was talking to all of those that would follow him. If you love this life so much, then you're going to lose it. The oxymoron. Try to save your life, lose it. Give up your life for my sake, find it. One of those beautiful, awesome oxymorons of faith. You want to save your life, lose it. This is the answer that he gives to Philip and Andrew when they say, hey, do you want to meet the Greek guys? Um, broken to Beautiful. What Jesus was explaining in that little metaphor about the seed was he was explaining the concept of broken to beautiful. Um, Man, I just want you to think for a minute on those words, those three words, broken to beautiful. And I want you to ask God to bring something to your mind where you saw, maybe in your own life, maybe something happened to you or maybe somebody around you where you saw broken to beautiful. There was a video that i should have looked this up and i should have but maybe another time we'll do it but kevin did this for the youth group and i'm going to get some of the minor facts wrong so excuse me that i do this but uh it was a video and it was a girls softball game and uh it was a champ some kind of championship game and the team that was about ninth inning bottom of the ninth two outs runner on first they're down by one run and this girl's up to bat last bat of the game, and this championship on the line. This girl hits a home run, two-run home run. And as she's leaving the batter's box to run to first base, she tears her ACL and falls flat on her face in the dirt. Now, the rules of softball are she has to complete the circuit of the bases in order for that run to count. If she can't complete the circuit of bases, she's out and the game is over. Her teammates cannot help her. That's against the rules. They can't come do any. they can't bring another runner in for her at that point anything. She's laying in the dirt about four feet from first base, where she's blown out her ACL, in the championship game. The other team's going to win. The other team's got it. They're, they're going to win. Two girls from the other team come out onto the field and get on either side of this girl, and they pick her up one under this leg with their arm around this way and another girl on that side and they walk has anybody seen this video we gotta we gotta show it they walk this girl around the bases and touch her foot on the base first base second base third base home plate and then she gets in an ambulance and goes to the hospital those and those girls lost the championship but what did they gain that young lady that blew out her knee was broken but that event was beautiful and without the brokenness you don't get the beautiful you know what if she'd hit that home run and traipsed around those bases and jumped into the arms of her teammates at home plate as she crossed the plate that would have been a wonderful moment for for them and for their fans and their family and whatever and then the next day that moment would have been gone and life would have continued But I'm talking about something that's five years ago, six years ago. This happened five or six years ago. And I'm talking about it right now. Brokenness in Christ leads to beauty. And we curse brokenness, don't we? We do. We, We avoid it. We don't want it. When we're in it, all we want is out of it. Brokenness brings beauty. Sweetly broken. One of my favorite songs total oxymoron, total oxymoron, think about it, I'm sweetly broken, I'd rather not be sweetly broken, I'd rather be sweetly whole, Um, yeah, sweetly broken is one of those beautiful oxymorons, he makes beautiful things out of the dust, oxymoron, I've had the privilege in my life of helping to facilitate some sweetly broken moments. Um, and I'm gonna tell you just two stories. Um, so when I was a world, world Vision, was a World Vision many, many, many years, and, and uh, I was a new fundraiser. You know, I moved from, I had a career in human resources and I decided I wanted to switch careers and I went into fundraising. And I remember having like the dark night of the soul when you like switch a career. I know you switched a careers, so you know that feeling. And uh, I remember talking to a buddy at work and I said, oh, my gosh, man, I think I made a big mistake because I was like the expert at World Vision Human Resources. I mean, everybody came to me for everything and I wrote all the policies. I mean, I did all that stuff and I walked away from that and thought I was going to be this fundraiser. And um, so I'm telling this guy, "Go, man, I think I made a big mistake. I made this career suicide. What am I doing? And he asked me, he goes, so you feel inadequate, untrained, ill-equipped, blah, blah, I go, to all of those things. He goes, you're right where God wants you. Best word I ever got in my life. So I was like, okay. And so I took this job, um, and I remember the— Boss that hired me, it was a brand new department. They were just starting this new fundraising thing. And uh I went in there and I, here's what I expected. This is what happened when they'd bring in new fundraisers. They go, here's your list of donors, and this is the group that you work, and this is you know what you do, and you raise money from you know these folks and blah blah blah. It's like, okay, great. Well, that's what I thought was gonna happen. So I walk in and uh she like goes, There's no list. There's, this group has no donors. We have to just do it from scratch. So I'm like, wow. Okay, and I, you know, and I knew that when they'd bring a new fundraiser in into the established fundraising areas, they had about 18. They weren't expected to hit any kind of an income goal for about 18 months, because that's how long it took to find your feet and build relationships. These are major gifts, like gifts that are you know five figures, six figures. That's how long that took, and uh, I knew um, I knew my organization well enough to know that they didn't have a lot of patience when you weren't hitting goals. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, this is something. So I thought, okay, I just got to figure this out. I'm going to do this. So I was really good friends with the person that ran the phone center at World Vision. And I said, here's what I want you to do. Any phone call you get that you don't know where to send it. Because World Vision had all these programs, right? Sponsorship and clean water and da-da-da and this. And, you know, people would call in. You know, they knew where to send those. But occasionally somebody would call in and you are like go, I don't know where to send this. Call what this person wants to do. And I told them, I said, anytime you get that call, send it to me. And I used to call that panning the ore. I would pan the ore to find the diamonds, right? There were diamonds. There were diamonds. There was a lot of ore, too. (laughs) But there were diamonds. And so this one day, I get a message from the phone center and said, we got a phone call from this truck driver in Gig Harbor. Um, And he wants to talk to somebody from World Vision. Um, Can you him a call. I said, yeah. So I, actually, he was class I said, Gig Harbor. I said, why don't you, you know, why don't you come on in? Let's have coffee. And we said, don't me. It was Mark Wagner. This was 2000, 2000 maybe? I took the job in 2000. So it was probably that year. And so Mark and I have coffee. And Mark was 30, 37 years old, I believe, truck driver. And um, again, this was in the early 2000s. Mark had a failed valve in his heart. Now, that surgery now is like an appendix surgery I mean they replace valves now all the time and the success rate is what is it Toby 98% or something probably that's become a very standard surgery in 2000 it wasn't the survival rate was the success rate was about 50 50 the survival rate was not you know it wouldn't make you optimistic let's put it that way and so Mark had, had to have this surgery so he goes in and he has the surgery and it's a success marks a Christian yeah it's a success and Mark says, man, I got it. Because what was happening was he was, he was tired. He, could, he couldn't, you know, he would walk you know, six feet, and he'd have to sit down because his blood wasn't circulating properly. And they told him, unless you have this surgery, um, you're probably not going to live. And so Mark went and had the surgery. And so Mark said, I just wanted to celebrate life. And so he goes, I ran a marathon. <laughs> I trained, and I ran a marathon. And he was the first person ever to run a marathon after this surgery. Um, And it was awesome. And so and he told me, he goes, I ran that marathon for me. He goes, I want to run the next one for God. And I said, what does that mean? He says, I want to run a marathon. And he said, I want to use that marathon to raise money to help the poor. Can you help me? (laughs) We have any program. And um, I had this awesome woman that worked for me, Kevin knows the world, Lori Humphreys. Lori was my, Lori was the brilliant. I was the good looks. Lori was the brains. Basically, and um, so we said, I was just so taken with him, and I just said, because he told me, he goes, I've called um, the American Heart Association, I've called, uh, I've called, this is when racing for charity was very, nobody was doing it. There was a few really small ones out there, but there, there really wasn't that, and uh, so I said, well, Mark, we're going to figure out. So he says, I'm signed up for an event in Vancouver, or in Vancouver, Canada. Oh, no, Victoria, Victoria, Canada. I'm going to run this marathon. And that's the thing. So, Laurie and I put our right heads together like, we got to help this guy realize his dream. So, we had nothing automated. We made up forms that he could take and he went and spoke in churches and told people what he wanted to do. And people would fill out a sponsorship form to sponsor, you know, Mark and his marathon. And we tied it to. Um, Children suffering from HIV/AIDS in Africa. So that's what his money was going to go towards. And so the day of the race came, and so my Grace went with me. we uh, and Karen Cardus a really really good colleague of mine at World Vision. We all went up to Victoria to watch Mark run. And Mark ran his marathon, and I think he raised you know eight thousand dollars just on these forms, going to churches, asking people to sponsor him, and um, that was awesome. And so we had this little debrief with Mark afterwards, Invited him into the office, and I wanted him to meet certain people, you know. And so we had this little debrief. And so we kind of did that, had a lunch. And I'm thinking, we're done. You know, Mark, awesome job. And this always happens to me. And then Mark pulls me aside and he goes, Dana, there's tens of thousands of people like me who would do this for charity if they had something that they could plug into and do. And he challenged me. He said, there's thousands of us out there. And so long story short, um, Lori and I and Karen created this program called Team World Vision, which allowed athletes that were doing any kind of, of athletic activity to be able to create a website. You know, you've, now this is as common as you know mashed potatoes. Create a website, ask people to sponsor you online, and then go run your race. And Team World Vision at World Vision is going to celebrate its 20th anniversary next year. It's the largest faith-based racing charity in the world. From Mark Wagner. From this one guy. They actually wrote a magazine article on him. They called him Runner Zero. He was the, he was the very first guy. From one seed. A guy, a 35-year-old truck driver with a bad heart. That's who God would pick, though, isn't it? God wouldn't pick some Olympian or whatever. God would pick the 35-year-old truck driver with the bad heart. And out of one seed became many. World Vision now uses that program to raise money for clean water. And they've provided clean water for hundreds of thousands of people around the world through these races that people run. Broken to beautiful. So I want to tell you about one more person, somebody that's really dear. Her name is Kelly Sim. Um, Kelly, uh, her husband Jonathan worked with me at World Vision for many, many years. And um, several years, this was, oh gosh, how many years ago was this? This was probably about 2004, 2005. um, There was a severe famine in North Korea. I mean, people were dying by the thousands every day. And World Vision was doing, it was a Very tenuous, very dangerous, very controversial um, program to provide feeding for starving people in North Korea because North Korea is the enemy, right? But, you know, what does Jesus say to do with your enemies? Feed them, love them, right? So Jonathan was constantly flying from Seattle to Korea to monitor and do this cross-border feeding program. And Jonathan got a blood clot in his leg that you can get from sitting on these long flights. And the blood clot broke loose from his leg and it went to his brain. And he lost consciousness and was taken to the hospital. And I got a phone call, Jonathan's in the hospital. And um, so I go to the hospital. And uh, Kelly, his wife, meets me outside. And she said, I need to talk to you privately. So I said, okay. So I didn't know Kelly that well. I knew Jonathan really well. Kelly and I met a few times, but I didn't know her that well. And so Kelly pulled me aside and she said, I have to go into the room and make the decision to take him off the life support machine. And she goes, I have to go do that right now. Because she says there's no brain activity. There's no hope. And, uh, you know, she's telling me this and I'm like, what? And uh, she said... I want his life to count for something. And she said, so we have 14 sponsored children that they did as a family. He said, would you look at our, the villages where our children are? And would you find a village that needs a school? And I want to build a school. And, my, and this is while her husband is still on life support. And she's got to go in and, and they've got two small kids. I think their kids were, two and four at the time. And she said, I want you to find me a village that needs a school and I want to build a school on my husband's name. And so, gave her a hug. Kelly went in. They took Jonathan off sport. I went back to World Vision, looked up their donor record, saw the villages, grabbed a buddy named David Scheinman from the Africa region and said, help me find something. And so, there there were these... um, These prospective projects that would be written by these different programs around the world, and there was a um, Twachyanda, Zambia There was a little village that needed a high school They had no high school and the kids would have to walk 15 miles to the nearest high school So they would walk on Monday 15 miles go to high school stay in abandoned huts and houses and then walk back on Friday That's how they did school and so this, village, this community needed a high school. So we got in touch with that community, told them kind of the story. They said, we will name it the Jonathan Sim Legacy School. And Kelly, Jonathan had a life insurance policy. Kelly tithed out of his life insurance policy, got the ball rolling. She did a fundraising. Some, I'll tell you that story. That's a whole other story. Brought some other fundraisers in alongside of Kelly. And we were able to go to Zambia and cut the ribbon on that, um, on that high school. And it's still there today, the Jonathan Sim Legacy High School, from broken to beautiful. And now these kids, it's one of the most modern high schools because Kelly wanted to do it. It's got solar power. They have labs so the kids can uh, do science. It's one of the, it's one, of, and it is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Swachanda is nowhere um, But this beautiful solar-powered high school is in this community. And it's just an amazing, an amazing place. From broken to beautiful. From broken to beautiful. I wanna read you guys, um, just to close, I just wanna read you guys a story. Um, this may be my favorite of all the ones that I've written. Um, but this one, this story is called Broken Teacups. And I just want you to think Broken Teacups. <laughs> And I just want you to think about that concept of broken to beautiful as I read this story to you, okay? Psalm 34, 17 through 18 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's talking about us. This isn't stuff he does for other people. He's talking about us. Once there was a little house set on a country lane. Some might call it ordinary, nondescript, or plain, but that would be deceiving. For in truth, we all know well, sometimes the simplest dwellings have the grandest tales to tell. And so it is this morning as we venture through the door into a lovely parlor with exquisite oaken floors, a room that's set aside Exclusive, proper, and held dear, considered extra special by the lady living here. This space so intimate has felt her decorators touch from the fine handcrafted table to the maple china hutch. Resplendent in simplicity and always clean and neat, it serves as her daydreaming place, asylum and retreat. For here, upon a papered wall, a shelf is firmly hung, holding treasured symbols, memories to which she's clung. Fragile, dainty teacups, quite exotic and antique, each could tell a charming tale, if only they could speak. Of forty years of marriage, as her thoughts cascade and drift, to her kind and thoughtful husband Jim and unexpected gifts. Teacups were her favorite. He'd surprise her and he'd say, I bought this for my darling just because it's Saturday. They'd laugh and he would hold her. Then he'd whisper in her ear, Each time you see your teacups, know how much I love you, dear. All those special moments had become this fine collection, precious now that she was left with only recollections. Illness in its time had finally overcome her gym, and so she loved her teacups, for they made her think of him. Down the road a mile or so from where resides Our Lady lives a quiet, shy young man whose given name is Brady. Brady is an artist. Well, at least he tries to be. Painting portraits, landscapes, sometimes selling two or three. His art income is modest, nothing left for fun or frills. Commissions are infrequent and they rarely pay the bills. And so he chases other work, odd jobs that may arise, bringing in the money for his paint and art supplies. Today he'll be a handyman for someone he adores, the lady living down the lane. He'll wash and wax her floors. She keeps him rather busy, and he suspects the reason why has more to do with loneliness than skills he will apply. Every week she has a task. It could be lawn or gutters, fix an oil, a hinge upon a squeaky door or shutter. She'll call him to the parlor, there present his modest fee, invite him to sit down a while and have a cup of tea. She'll ask about his painting, any news of sales or shows, and what he's done and doing, though she well already knows. For each of them, their solitude, these moments interrupt, and Brady fancies tea with her out of her fancy cups. Arriving at the front door, Brady smiles and rings the bell. Our lady quickly answers in a voice that he knows well. Moving to the parlor as they visit and they chat, She gets a mop and bucket while he hangs his coat and hat. She tells him she'll be upstairs changing sheets and pillowcases, and he can wax the parlor till they both can see their faces. They share a hearty laugh. She mounts the stairs, adjusts her shawl, and Brady moves the furniture from parlor into hall. He's just a bit distracted as he clears the chairs away. He's thinking about the painting that he started yesterday, the color scheme he'd chosen, the dimensions and the scale. He dips the wrinkled mop head in the warm and soapy pail. Perhaps a different texture I could finger paint, he jokes, and starts to move the mop around with long and sweeping strokes. As he ponders whether oils would contribute or corrupt, He barely missed the edge that holds the saucers and the cups. Pulling back the handle, elbow cocked and carried high, he barely missed the edge as he conceives a painted sky. While planning where the clouds he'll paint will fade from gray to black, he pulls upon the mop and takes one faithful half-step back. The handle hits that shelf just like a swinging wrecking ball and lifts it from the hangers fastened to the parlor wall. Floating for a nanosecond frozen in midair, the shelf and cups and saucers almost seem suspended there. But this is not enchantment or a wizard's magic hex. No spell can change or alter what is going to happen next. Brady, with a face as white as England's cliffs of Dover, watches helplessly as fate and gravity take over. And 40 years of memories, of love's exquisite lore, of time and tears and tenderness come crashing to the floor. Brady stands immobile, unbelieving in despair, as quick and urgent footsteps loudly echo down the stairs, then moving to the door, well Brady, um, then moving to the doorway, there to stand with mouth agape, the lady lets a mournful "oh," and choking cry escape. Brady cannot find his words. For what heartfelt expression do you utter when you smash someone's most prized possessions? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Hung a neply in the air. The lady moved unsteadily to sit upon a chair. Maybe I can fix them. I'll go get a broom and a box and broom. Brady leaves the mop and pail and rushes from the room. Running back in urgency and sweating like an ox, Brady gently sweeps the shattered pieces in a box. He turns to face the lady where she sits with wounded grace tears have left a glistening trail of grief upon her face i've glue and towels and tweezers and a magnifying glass he's stammering and stumbling speaking anxiously and fast i i know it looks impossible but maybe i he pled then tarried in mid-sentence when she sadly shook her head brady And she choked her words, her voice a cheerless groan. There's nothing you can do now, and I think you should go home. He stood there, just so miserable, his feet like granite blocks. Stiffly, he extends his hands and offers her the box. No, she said now distantly. Defeat infused her eyes. Please dispose of that for me. Then bowed her head, goodbye. Time, the plodding healer, in the nights and days gone by, hasn't yet removed or dulled the thoughts that made her cry. It's not the loss of things themselves, no, that was not the treasure, it was what they brought in mood and thought, that always was the pleasure. And now there's just an emptiness, an effort to recall the beauty that once found itself there on her parlor wall. She knows the gloom and moping won't reverse these aching hours, and so she plans to spend the day outside amidst her flowers. Putting on her bonnet and a pair of gardening gloves, she ambles to the porch to leave the thoughts of things she loved. Standing in her doorway, something there catches her eye, sitting on the topmost step in paper wrapped and tied. She lifts it from the platform, holds it firmly in her hands, is pulled back in the house by curiosity's demands. Entering the parlor on the table sets the thing, retrieves a pair of scissors, oh, so gently cuts the strings, tears the wrapping paper where it's firmly taped behind, then stares in silent wonder as amazement fills her mind. A beautiful mosaic lies within the lacquered frame. A single ornate teacup is the image there ordained. Reds and blues and turquoise seem to shimmer and to dance, appearing carved by purpose with purpose and not fragmented by chance. Skillfully assembled by an artist's loving hand, she's never seen a work of art so elegant, so grand. She leans upon the table for a careful, closer gaze. And what she then discovers, she'll remember all her days. A gasp of exultation from her joyous heart erupts. This masterpiece is fashioned from her broken, shattered cups. And lying with the paper, something she'd not seen before, a small and sealed envelope, the front her name it bore. Removing a handwritten card, she teared up as she read words that touched her very soul. And here's what it said. My friend, I'm just so sorry for my awful, careless act. I've made a thousand wishes that the deed I could retract. But knowing I can never change the past and make it right, I hope that you'll accept this gift, that peace it will invite I trust that God most merciful does surely understand and he takes our broken pieces and within his loving hands the fragments that are jagged, sharp, unusable, discarded when rearranged by him become redeemed and well regarded. So may this humble effort made of porcelain and glass remind you that his faithfulness will comfort you and last. These words brought such tranquility and healing to Our Lady, for at the bottom it was signed, affectionately, Brady. She finds herself emerging from the sadness that encased her and feels as if Almighty God himself had just embraced her. Now filled with new excitement, she attends to one detail, bringing to the parlor both a hammer and a nail. Placed with great intention as her gloom and sorrow flee, she hangs the bright mosaic where her teacups used to be. She wouldn't trade this gift for all the paintings in the Louvre and knows within her heart of hearts that Jim, he would approve. With joy as her companion, she retrieves a card and pen. Smiling to herself, she thinks about a special friend. Then sitting in her parlor, there's no place she'd rather be. She starts a note: "Dear Brady, won't you haven't come? Won't you come and have some tea?" From broken, from broken to beautiful. Amen. God is the master artist, and and um, what we think is broken and shattered and unusable and destroyed and unfortunate and pick your adjective um, in the hands of a master artist God will take those broken pieces and reassemble them that's what that song means sweetly broken that's what it means our brokenness rearranged by the master artist into something beautiful isn't that awesome that's what God does and that's his promise for every one of us broken to beautiful Lord, we just thank you that you are, you are the God of oxymorons. Um, you don't conform. Um, the, the world just doesn't recognize you, doesn't understand you. And thank you so much that you give us a chance to get a glimpse of who you are. That our brokenness can become so beautiful when we offer it to you. So, Lord, I just uh, would ask that wherever we are, In our lives today um, that we offer all that we are whether it's um, we're feeling joy and wholeness or whether we're feeling brokenness and and that shattered feeling God may we look with confidence to the master artist who is going to rearrange the pieces of our lives into something incredibly beautiful not just for us but for the world as well for if a if a seed dies and falls and it is buried it will grow again and it will bear much fruit thank you that you let us be a part of your kingdom in jesus name amen amen Amen. be joyful as you go today broken beauty amen amen amen
1: if what you've heard today inspires you to want to make a difference i urge you to explore the so powerful website at www.sopowerful.org. That's S-E-W-P-O-W-E-R-F-U-L dot O-R-G. The website has great information about the organization. It's where you can download the free purse patterns or even make a donation. We hope you will join us again next week when we bring you another So Powerful story. Thanks for listening. Now, go out and have a So Powerful day.